You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm your host, Vicky Maguire. I'm a coach. I work in schools with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and the well-being of all their staff through a variety of different coaching approaches. And today we have the absolutely awe-inspiring Dr. Vic Carr on the show. This woman is totally awe-inspiring. She's a head teacher, a mother, an army reservist, a keep fit fanatic with a real zest for life and I'm just totally in awe of the energy and positivity that she exudes and I'm sure you'll agree with me when you listen to her in the interview but also after listening to the interview you'll hear about how Vic has overcome adversity and how her own experiences have helped to support the well-being work that she's that she does with staff and helps her to look after the well-being of other people and she has been through it um she has a ted talk i would really advise you to listen to that and um, she's been through a divorce as well and double mastectomy her sister's had cancer and what really strikes me is how she's been able to remain so positive throughout everything that she's been through and that she just maintains a real aura of positivity and optimism about her and that really I find very very inspirational. Now just before you listen to the interview I need to point out that I had to record it in two sittings. The reason being that halfway through the initial interview Vic got the call from Ofsted and obviously had to leave the interview she was called away. So we resumed the interview Uh, But we didn't get a chance to resume it until a month later. Now, that tells you something about our scheduling and maybe something we should be having a look at, perhaps. But anyway, here is Dr. Vic Carr. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the We Lead Well podcast, Dr. Vic Carr. It's great to have you on the show. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. You look well. You look well. You look, look very happy today. I'm always smiling. That's why I've got crinkles around my eyes. But I tell you, I look well at the moment because I've discovered this um, this magic potion that you put on your face. <laughs> it's actually called fake tan, which I've never used before in my entire life until this year. And uh, my daughter was concerned about me going to school looking pale and unwell um, just because the pandemic had sucked the life out of me, I think. But so she, she gave me these drops and she said, put them in your moisturiser at night, mum. So I thought I'd been given the answer to all things, put it on my face. And the next day I woke up looking a bit like glowing as I am today. Um, I had brown hands because I've never used oh, no. that's actually <laughs> hands and I was like, walking around going oh my god everyone just laughed at me because I'm such a fool at times but anyway yeah the glow is definitely fake glow <laughs> that's the curse of the teenage girl the the, the fake tan hands <laughs> see so many of those she's mastered oh. it in a way I haven't but anyway. there's there's the first we lead well so look well by wearing fake tan and on your face and you can what's that, what's that expression fake it until you make it so until the sun comes out it's fake tan drops in your night there you go I'm washing your hands very important. 
a healthy glow. Um, but it's so nice to have you on the show. I heard you on another, on another. I think it was SOS Radio that Steve Waters does, which is well worth yeah. a listen if anybody's if anybody's thinking about other podcasts or things that they can listen to that are education based. So can you just introduce yourself to the listeners and just give us a bit of a flavour for who you are and what you do? I know you do lots of things, so <laughs> give us an introduction um, to yourself. Okay, so um, as you said, I um, am Vic Carr. I am a head teacher, primary school head teacher in Ellesmere Port in the largest school in our area. Um, and I took it over when it was in a, um, a poorly state and I've loved it back to life over the last three years. We've recently had two Ofsteds in, in a couple of months. We had one in February, two days, and one a couple of weeks ago for a day, which was exciting. Aside from um, inviting Ofsted in and welcoming them, I also have the, the pleasure and the privilege of being a mum to two children, two teenagers. Um, my daughter is currently doing her GCSEs, and my son is at the Army College in Harrogate. He's 17, and my daughter's 16. I'm a single mum. Uh, with all the, the joys that that brings, juggling and uh, working around things. I'm a master's student. I'm currently doing a master's in military history with the University of Buckingham. I am an army reservist in, in military intelligence, which is exciting and really good. Um, I like fitness and sports. It's, it keeps uh, me sane, keeps me mentally healthy. I've got a school dog called Gus who has rapidly become the light of everyone's life um, here and at home. And yeah, I think, I think that's it. I've got a doctorate, uh, which I think you mentioned when you introduced me. And I've also got two other MAs uh, from the past. And I think that probably sums it up, really. <laughs> when you say something up, it's like, mm, how? <laughs> I just think that's amazingly inspirational. How do you manage to do all that? I mean, the listeners know that I completely, you know, I could not cope once I was a single mum. So I really admire you in that respect. So tell us how you do it. Uh, compartmentalize my time. Everything is compartmentalized. So I have a diary and I just block in times and um, and just make it work. Really, I don't watch much telly. Something has to give, obviously, and I don't watch much TV. Um, and in fact, I would say that what I do really well, which might not always be the, the most healthy thing to do uh, on, in, on reflection, is I fill my time up. And I've done it since I was a child. Um, I did a TED talk. I don't know if you've seen that, but I did a TED talk. Uh, I think it was last year. Um, and I talk about how I used to just escape into books as a child to escape um, quite a violent home. And that's something that's never left me, really. I just escape into books and I live there. Um, so, you know, that is kind of what I've carried on. It's my go to method. It's either that or go for a run. Um, and I didn't start. I've always done sports, but I didn't actually start running until uh, my sister had cancer. When I nursed my sister for a couple of months through cancer, I found that the only way of uh, even sleeping after a 12-hour day on a cancer ward was to go for a run. So at nine o'clock at night, I'd be running around the streets um, in the dark, just trying to keep myself in one piece. So I compartmentalise everything. Uh, I make time for everything. Um, and I don't, I don't sleep very much, which is another problem that I've had since I was a child. Oh, really? So this morning I was up at up as five doing my ironing 
um, because tonight I've got a governor's meeting and the space between home and the governor's meeting will be cooking dinner and going for a run um, because that will go on till quite late. So it's just about that really compartmentalising, but it is doable, it's manageable. Um, but I don't have days where I think I'll lie in bed all day, uh, you know, have a lie in. The holidays are always as busy as the term times really but I, I quite like that because um, if I'm honest with you and again it's perhaps not the healthiest way of dealing with things although I'm much better at it now it stops me dwelling on on some of the sad stuff that goes on um, I do work my way through that stuff but in in little chunks rather than uh, letting it overwhelm me and that's just a lesson I've learned from childhood really it's, it's not a big secret or a big um, you know mystical methodology is just a strategy that I've developed um, through adversity and since I was a child that's probably a really long answer that you didn't really need no, no it's it really really interesting it just it one of the things that I, I want to ask is a bit more about how you've ended up as a head teacher so what's your story in in teaching I've had an amazing career um, if you can hear squeaking, by the way, it's not my chair. I'm not sat on a whoopee cushion. It's the school dog at my feet. Right. So just to let the listeners know. <laughs> People are used to Ruby. Ruby's very, very nicely on her little beanbag here. But as soon as the postman or something goes on outside, she's she's down there woofing. So <laughs> they're used to it. How did I end up as a head? Well, so it started when I was 18 and um, had to decide what I was going to do post-secondary school and I went to a very selective school my daughter goes to it now and just through pure chance really and um, I had to decide whether to go to university or follow my dream which was to become a Chinook pilot in the RAF and wow. I was scared I was actually scared and, and I didn't really have I say it in my TED talks it's not a secret I didn't really have a woman behind me saying come on Vic be the first one just do it throw yourself at it just do it I really wanted to do it and I didn't have the courage at that time um, and in fact since then it's been a moral obligation of mine really to try and light fires under all the women that I come across young or old to make sure that they know that they do have the courage they just need to find it because I just didn't have it as a teenager so I applied for the RAF and university which was the way everybody wanted me to go and uh, I went in the end I thought whichever comes back first is the, is the one I do and I left fate to decide and uh, it was actually probably the Royal Mail but anyway I off I went to university <laughs> and uh, and I did my degree and, and I absolutely loved it I was at Charlotte Mason College in the Lake District and my degree ended up being in environmental science and outdoor education and I just absolutely loved it being in the outdoors and you know just the freedom and the, and the physical activity and the connection with nature and all those things again that sustain me now as an adult so so that was my degree and then it came to applying for jobs and I just applied for anything again I had this idea where I just thought what will be will be I will just apply and see what happens and my friend Paul and I were going for the same jobs in the same place his girlfriend lived in in the northeast and my boyfriend at the time lived in the northeast, so we were kind of applying for similar jobs. So we'd car share from the lakes all the way over to these interviews, and we'd both be like, "Oh!" And he got his job, and he's been in the northeast ever since. He's an absolutely gorgeous guy. He runs Amble Link School in in the northeast. Lovely guy. And I got a job in a middle school, teaching Year Five uh, Maths, English, and Science for fifty percent of my timetable, and teaching Key Stage Three girls PE the other 50% of my timetable and I just loved it I didn't know what I was going to think about teaching I knew I had loved school as a kid just loved it it was my safe place everybody I'd ever met who was influential on me 
I was in a school setting so I thought you know I'll see I'll see what I, what I think of it and I just launched myself in and nowadays it'd be called your NQT year but back then there wasn't a thing um I just threw myself at it I organized uh outdoor residentials you know um fundraisers you know we were swimming we just did all kinds of stuff and I loved it and then really sadly the local authority decided to close this amazing school Killingworth Middle School they closed it to sell off the land for housing and at that time they were trying to relocate um, the teachers and simultaneously my boyfriend at the time was going back to Kenya where, where he was from his family were expats and he said do you want to come with me and I said yeah okay I was young had nothing to lose and uh, we went to Kenya and settled there and basically he worked for a farming a large farming uh, company called Homegrown and they grew all the flowers and vegetables to Marks and Spencers and Waitrose and people like that and there were a huge bunch of farms in our area lots of whom were run by um, expatriate people who had small children and there was this kind of question hanging over everyone about how to educate the children and I rocked a uh, you know teacher from England set up a school uh, it was established just before I got there, but I was like the, the main teacher, so I became the head teacher. And uh, it was an absolute baptism of fire, but I completely loved it. So we had children from two all the way up to nine or ten before they went off to prep school and, and then obviously boarding school after that. But I completely loved it. And I came back to England because my sister had cancer. And uh, I nursed her for a little while and then gave her a bone marrow transplant. And during that time, my good friend who had been my head of year in Killingworth had become a head teacher. And she rang me up and said, look, we've got a promoted post here. Why don't you come and work with me in Northumberland? So I went there and then I became head of English and head of Key Stage 3, which again was a leadership position. And I loved it, just helping people. Um, you know, I loved English. and although I didn't have an English degree I just absolutely loved what I did and was passionate about reading and stuff and then I moved to Germany with my husband who had got married and I had my children and I thought what am I going to do so I did a master's degree and taught English in another middle school for the army and I taught then soldiers um, GCSE maths and English which was really rewarding came back to England after that and got my deputy headship did another master's degree and did um, MPQH. And then I got my first headship. I worked there for six years and did a doctorate. And then I was asked by the director of education to come here because I'd done a good job in my last school and, and kind of, I don't know, yeah, I suppose I had a proven track record. I, I was asked to come here and this school had been poorly for a little while. So here I am. So that's my journey, really. That's a long, another long explanation. You're probably thinking that you nodded off. <laughs> no, I'm fascinated by it. It's amazing. You've done so much. I mean, all of you. I think it's absolutely no. amazing. So one of the things that I think is really important is that we get more women onto senior leadership teams and especially into headship roles. Um, what do you think is preventing women from taking on those roles at the minute? I think... Um, women are predisposed to lack confidence and to talk themselves out of things unless they fulfill the entire criteria. And what I said to some students, I think it was earlier on this year when I, I did a talk for, um, for Hope University students was, you know, if I could give anybody any advice now, it would be to just seize every opportunity. Don't think and don't wait 
because the more you take time thinking about things, the more likely it is that you'll talk yourself out of it. If you just throw yourself at it, just see what's the worst that can happen. You know, you won't get selected or you won't get um, offered the job or whatever. Okay, your pride might be a little bit dented, but actually, what's the best thing that could happen? You could get the job. And then the next step is, oh my God, I'm not qualified for this job. How am I going to do it well? And you can then talk yourself into this panic where, how am I going to do this? Do I have the skills? And the answer is you do have the skills. And also there, you never do things on your own. There are always a community of people around you. So it's definitely about collaboration. So confidence is one barrier. Um, collaborate, not collaborating with people is another barrier. I think the number of people who contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn and, and ask for support in small and big ways. And, and I just give it, I fit it into the timetable and I give that support because sometimes a conversation or taking the time with someone is the difference between them taking the next step or rising to the next challenge or overcoming the next barrier and doing something really successful with their lives and not. And I think more people doing that would probably help an awful lot of people in the long run, because if you're helped, then you want to help two or three people. And if those two or three people want to help, then it's an exponential growth of people who are just keen to pay it forward. Yeah, I think that's really important to me because it was one of the struggles that I had as a deputy and an assistant head to a certain extent is that I couldn't convince our local CPD, I can't remember what they were called, board or something like that, that was headed by a, a male head teacher, that deputies and assistant heads needed some sort of network like the head teachers had, and that it was really important that they could get together and support each other and share ideas and things like that. That was a real struggle. That's why, I, that's why I've started the women leaders group coaching that I do to create those networks. And that's one of the, the main feedback, like the main feedback that I've had from the women on there is that it's been great just to have that supportive network you can turn to. One of the things that people say is that head being a head is a lonely job. It's like, it, that's, it's like a, like people say it, don't they over and over. So it's such a lonely job. Do you think that's, do you think that to some extent that puts women off as well? Because I think women, we're probably more social, aren't we? We, we need mm. those networks. Do you think that potentially puts people off as well? I think there's, I think there are many narratives around leadership. And I think depending on which one you hear and which one you subscribe to, you can think all kinds of things. And I think um, what I would say is that that mentorship, I see it as a key component of my role and always have, you know, the, the more uh, the more leadership I've done and the more roles I've, I've taken on in terms of being a leader, the more I see that the mentoring those junior um, leaders, those aspiring leaders is absolutely crucial because you can now, for example, me in my role as head here, I've got a big school, so I've got a big senior leadership team, which means I can either create waves for people that they can ride and surf and be, and be brilliant or create barriers for them that, that are just going to stop their progress. And so for me, I think that's the same with all leaders. We can all do that for the people that work with us. Um, I don't see people as subordinates. I see them as my colleagues. I see them often, um, you know, by the time it, it gets to me being somewhere for two, three years, they're my, they're my mates. And yes, we have challenging conversation, but actually I want to see them succeed. And I think whether you're male or female, if you look at things in a way that if you create an environment where people are encouraged to succeed and you as the head can remove as many barriers as possible, then not only will your team benefit and your school benefit, 
but also you as the lead benefit because you have got a mentally robust, mentally healthy, strong bunch of individuals, men or women, um, or, you know, to, to be on the safe side, even people who don't identify with any of those binary genders. But I mean, it doesn't matter who you've got in your team. If you create that environment for them to flourish, then they're going to flourish. And, and that's what I think is really important. Coaching and mentoring. You know, it's something that I lectured in at master's level at two units, two successive universities. It's something that I value at giving to others because it's something that largely didn't happen to me. And I think I've kind of clawed my way really to, to being the success that I am just through determination, just because I'm quite a tenacious person. But actually, if I can make it easier for someone else, then that again, I, I call it a moral obligation. It's literally what I should be doing. It's part of sustainability, it's part of the head teacher standards anyway, but it's it's kind of my philosophy that if you can help someone, whether that's academically, socially, um, career-wise, and then really you ought to create those opportunities. So I think it could be, um, you know, what you said, or equally, it could be just that people don't see their role as important in terms of mentorship. It's interesting that... <laughs> You, you talk about the barriers. What do you think the barriers are? Well, I think we're women and largely traditionally we raise children. So we kind of tend to have two or three jobs all going on at once. So I run, I run a house. That's my job. I run my children. That's another job. Um, two teenagers who are both going, through, you know, there's only 11 months between my children. So they're going through um, career changing and career pathway um decision-making processes that are really important and viable to me and I've invested myself in my children and in their development so therefore I can't take my foot off the gas with them you know I can't let my house fall to rack and ruin so there's an element of housework and and in the modern world more men are doing this and more men see that it's important to be collaborative and, and to share those responsibilities parenting and in fact that's being recognized by policy men are allowed paternity leave um other countries are obviously a bit a bit, bit far ahead but you know we're slowly grinding our way towards the fact that everyone should take equal responsibility for child rearing and, and for housekeeping really um but i think in the past and certainly until recently and maybe even still now um it, it's that compromise between I mean, I watched a funny program the other day. I didn't mean to, but it just came on. I forgot what it's called. It's called Motherland, I think. What, Motherland. <laughs> I was ironing. Uh, some trailers for it. I thought I need to hilarious. watch that. So she's there on the phone and she says, I'm sorry, can I just check with you? Did you ring my husband before you rang me? Why are you ringing me about the PE kit? And I thought, actually, that's so true. As, as you know, who do we phone first? We phone the mum first. And you know and nowadays we need to recognize that families aren't just mum and dad their dads or their mums or you know it's a single dad or you know the child lives in care or whatever and I think that old narrative really does need to shift quite rapidly now to embrace those those changes in society but I do think a lot by and large people my age um, have come through a system where it was mainly the mum who had the children it was mainly the mum who ran the household and therefore, you've got two jobs to try and sort out before you even get to school. And, and that is quite the challenge because you've then got three jobs, haven't you? One of which is paid, the other two which aren't. Childcare yeah. for me used to be a big issue. You know, when I was separated, I, I don't even know what I was working for, really, because um, £800 a month on, on childcare for two children was quite the challenge. And that sucked the life out of me. And I just thought, you know, this is time limited. And 
you rely on other people to support you with your children. And I think as the breakdown in society has occurred over the years, that kind of support network that would have been there in the past that I enjoyed as a child. My nan and granddad looked after me and my brother and sisters, as did my auntie. Um, we grew up as part of a community. And I don't know that that happens anymore. You know, my sisters both work. Yeah. You know, for, for us, that community's gone because everyone's now working. And that's a, that's a thing that's kind of happened over time, isn't it? So I do think there's, there are several things. And I think finances as well. You know, you have to think about the incentives to work and, you know, if it's financially viable for you to go to work. Some people choose not to simply because by the time they pay for childcare, it's not worth it. So they may as well be at home raising the children as in work with the additional stress having to pay for someone else to do that job. So it's very complicated, isn't it? And every situation is different. But certainly they're the things that I've, uh, as a leader, over time, they are the things that I've had to get past really which is having to run a home and have children and you know I'm very lucky that my mum is so supportive yeah it's interesting because my <laughs> I think my mum can't retire until she's 67 so she's she's still been working and she's been she's had health issues lately but yeah she was working so I didn't get any any help from my mum and I think my ex-husband's mum worked as well because we were a little bit younger probably when we had our children so if people are going to have to work later as well they're not going to be able to support their children their grandchildren are they what do you do in school to support that because you clearly have a you know you, you're very empathetic there in that you understand the position that lots of female teachers are in and male teachers to a certain extent I'm not I'm not disregarding them in this aspect because once you and and also I'm not disregarding people who don't have families because there are different issues for them as well and I do think you know dads or fathers have the same issues as mums in a lot of respect so what have you done in in your school to support you know people who who, who are struggling to overcome some of those barriers well I, I mean probably like many many people I I think good leadership is just being a good human being really and recognizing that each of us has our own battles and I think there are lots of people here, for example, we've, we've got um, staff here who either, you know, they've got elderly parents who need a lot of care. Yeah, that's, another, that's another barrier, isn't it? Parents. So the way I do it is this, if it's possible for, um, for a, a member of staff to work from home and still complete their work, then I respect that and I let them work from home. Usually those things are time limited. So it might be, you know, on this day a week, can I work from home? Um, and it could be because that's the day that they have to sit with their with their parent who has dementia um, because there's no one else and they have to take their turn. And then they choose when they make up those hours, as long as their work is done, if they want to work every night late and then take that day to, to care for their parent, that's fine. As long as it doesn't have a detrimental impact on the children and we can sustain it as, as a team, then that's what we do. And each of us will cover for one another, um, you know, whenever there's been a need. So it's about embodying that team effort so you know it, it's almost like rounders I don't know if you have ever played rounders I remember rounders <laughs> at school and there was always a backstop who, who ran behind whichever person was either going to catch the ball or and if they dropped the ball the person behind the backstop would catch it and, and, and pick up that, that error and it feels to me that a lot of leadership is about always putting in a backstop so you know for example my special needs coordinator is working from home today and tomorrow she can work from home because she doesn't have a class and um, she's got a lot of paperwork to do for me 
I also know that she's not working from her own home. She's working from the home of her mum, who is actually dying of cancer. So if she can do that, why would I not facilitate that? And, and that's, that's an agreement that we've got. Otherwise, she would have to go off sick, which would be detrimental yeah. to my school. It would be detrimental to her. And she would still be going home to, to sit in her mum's house. So what I'm trying to say is if she can do paperwork while her mum sleeps, why wouldn't I be a good human and do that? And I've always um, been an advocate for that kind of work and that kind of support so it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman if they can work from home then they do largely it's a much harder thing to be flexible in a school isn't it because of the nature of having to have a teacher in front of a class in other in other organizations you can be more flexible you could say well you can come and work at 10 and stay till you know you could you can have flexible working or flexi time or whatever you call it so in terms of supporting staff in that aspect, how do you do it staffing wise? Because that's really difficult. I think isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, I think the good news is that the pandemic has actually left a few lingering positives. And one of those positives is the change in working that people can do. Yeah. So, um, you know, the whole idea of PPA, that's all done at home. So everyone takes the time at home. Also, we've built in the capacity here so that we've got some exceptional um teaching assistants we've got a couple of trained teachers who do additional work for us here so that if I wanted to say to someone and I did before the holiday we, we had a year five teacher who needed to go home to Ireland for four days and that that uh, was covered here so that's what we do we just build in the capacity and once you've got the capacity and, and as I say these things are usually if they're nipped in the bud and you support people to, to deal with whatever issue it is they've got then usually you can you can support that very quickly. That can be a very quick and decisive um, decision making process. If it's something more long term, like I said to you about somebody who needs to be with their parents, um, you, you know, to care for their parent, then that's something that we build in over time, and, and we'll fill that cover in, and that person will make up the time because there's always stuff that can be done, whether they do all the marking for that year group or whether they do all of the you know the preparation whatever it is each person just kind of and it's all individualized that's the thing it's about looking at how we can support but also it's about you, you kind of your systems isn't it it's about if you build in systems that minimize um workload then suddenly workload becomes manageable for other people should the need arise when they have to support in a, in a, in a certain way and on all of our systems, really, we're constantly um, streamlined. We're never complacent. And if there's something that we can do that will save time, but nevertheless, we call it bang for our buck. We can save time, but give bang for our buck. Then that's exactly what we're going to do. And, and, you know, I value staff a lot and I value their energy more than I value pointless bits of paperwork. Um, so we make every decision based on value. Is it going to add value to teachers? Is it going to add value to children? If it isn't, then what, what are we doing? And that's really important, isn't it? Because I think a lot of, probably a lot of leaders don't recognise the importance of systems and processes to staff wellbeing. They see them, them as two completely separate things, but actually you can't have one without the other. Yeah, well, I, I don't think, I think I'd be a bit silly or a bit hypocritical if I was going to say, you know, let's have toast Friday every week and actually be thrashing people with, and I want this piece of work and I want that piece of work. I just think... You can't really bolt it on. It just needs to be part of your daily, you know, your daily work. And getting a school dog has helped. Uh, you know, I paid for everybody um, to have uh, a fitness membership at school for three months, just as we moved back to school, you know, after the lockdown, just to keep people 
physically active and motivated and um it's about having a loads of different layers of things because I, I wouldn't just say well we do mental health because because everyone got a free fitness pass for three months or because we've got a school dog everyone's mentally healthy um so you know i i had um a guy who came in to do resilience training in September, first day back, that was my priority to make sure the staff were resilient enough to cope with what was coming, because it was obvious what was going to happen. Um, and then in January on the first day we did, I brought somebody in um, again to, to do some mental health practical work with everybody. And, and, and again, the feedback from staff is that this was so valuable. So it's about putting in the practical strategies, the systems being all up and running and in place, the human element, they can come and tell me anything. There's nothing at my age and in my stage of life that I haven't seen or that I've been a part of. And I mean, there is nothing. So if I haven't experienced it personally, then a member of my family has, or one of my friends have, and I'm very calm about it. I'm just not judgmental. So I will support and listen. Um, and, you know, we buy in, we buy in an advocacy service that's, um, to support staff as well that they it's a free service that they can just ring up and talk to someone so it's about lots of different layers really but i'd say for me mental health in the same way that it is for me it should be for everyone else it's the routines that you get yourself into it's what you allow into your life and and how you live your day-to-day -day life the little things that you do that will change what happens and if i've got staff working till midnight every night that's going to be completely detrimental to, to my main effort which is to, to get everyone here full of energy and teaching children every day I think that's really important that you say you know it's about the staff's energy isn't it it's about their ability to do the job well and if they're husks because they're, because they're not going to bed until one o'clock every morning because they've been putting data on a sheet or doing marking that nobody's ever going to look at then you're just on a hide into nothing aren't you one of the things you talked about there is value and I think it, I think it's really important what you're saying in that I've worked in a number of schools where no you're not allowed to go to your child's play and you, you know you've only got two tickets we both work in a school one of us can't you know only one's allowed to go in the evening one of us is going to have to no you can't do that or like you're saying no you can't take a day to go and look after an elderly relative or whatever it might be but I think the problem with that then is that like you're saying that member of staff then goes off sick and doesn't actually tell you what's going on they keep things secret because they think well if I need that I won't be given it so I'm going to have to tell lies and and be deceitful because I need to go and do something that I'm not allowed to do and then that can create I suppose it creates bad feeling whereas if you do the opposite and you allow people you have to accept that initially there will be cost there'll be a cost to it if you have to cover someone potentially for two days then there's a there's a cost to that but in the future there's a benefit because that member of staff will give back double what you've given them is that the sense that you get in your school that that's the way it works and you you get um, what you've what you've given i don't know i can equate it quite so starkly but what i would say is that i think people are in their workplaces for many many hours every day for a lot of their lives and if your workplace is a toxic place or a place where you are unhappy then you are not going to be your most productive and the whole point of living your life and, and being a productive member of society is about living your best life so that you don't need a holiday to get away from it. You're just living your best life anyway, that going to work can be quite nice, if not tolerable, it's just quite nice. And I feel like what I try and create, 
I know that as the head of this school, I set the weather in the school. If I come in in a grumpy mood or if I'm in a rut or if I'm fed up, then the cloud comes with me into school because people are looking to me at all times. And that that is completely, you cannot argue against that. That is completely legitimate. The head of any school, the leader of any organisation sets the tone. And I feel that therefore it is incumbent upon me to create the culture where everybody can come and be happy because happiness and energy is contagious in the same way that negativity and misery is contagious and fear and panic. I would far rather work in an environment that people want to come to work in and that where everybody is a member of a team and that we all care for one another than drag myself to work in a negative environment where everyone's looking over the shoulder, no one trusts anyone. We're all wondering what's coming next and who's next for the chop or whatever. I, I, I couldn't bear the thought. Oh, it's making me feel anxious thinking about it. Vic. See what I mean? <laughs> making so, my so chest constrict. Exactly. So I prefer to create the kind of culture where people want to come to work and want to thrive and actually want to be honest. And that's it's about being a team member. It's about working for the greater good, working for one another, as well as working for ourselves. It's not about being selfish. It's about working for others. And that is where our interview was cut short and Vic had to go and answer the Ofsted call. So I think this is a good point for me to tell you a little bit more about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. So Vic, we've had uh, we've had a little hiatus in our podcast recording because um, you had to go because you got a call from Ofsted. That's right. Isn't I did. It? <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't write it, could you? Um, second one in, in, in the same number of months. So uh, I don't think we were expecting that. <laughs> no, um, but everything turned out okay. Yeah, it was really good. Um, the first it was a monitoring visit. So the first monitoring visit we had in February was um, about the COVID measures and whether we were providing a good enough education during that and that was extremely positive um, because even though there was COVID and lockdown we were and then this one was a standard monitoring visit so we had an, an in-person visit and um, yeah the guy was really happy with what he saw um, as far as I could tell as far as you could tell with offset inspectors they yeah. come out and, it, and it's extremely positive so yeah all oh, that's Great news. Well, we were up to before we had to take a little break that's turned into a month's break because we know what the schedules are. Because life (laughs) and how busy we all are. Um, So we were talking about um, the culture in a school and you were talking about how um, heads set the weather 
And I, that made me think about sort of the idea of leadership presence, you know, being positive, having personal energy and a bias for positive achievement. And I wondered, you mentioned sort of, you know, if you're having one of those grumpy days, you've got to try and come in and um, be positive. And I just wondered what you do to maintain that sort of positivity and optimism, even on those days when you maybe do feel grumpy or you're not your usual positive self. I think um, I very rarely feel grumpy, if I'm honest with you. I sometimes feel, I'm trying to think when the last time I felt grumpy was, I can't remember. I sometimes feel quite depleted with energy. We did this mm-hmm. thing the other week. Um, I'm forever doing things, interesting, daft, silly things, whatever. But I did this personality quiz. I keep doing them periodically just to see if they change. I'm almost interested to see if I'm changing over time or, or if my personality remains, remains the same. Yeah. And my approach has changed. So it's called the Myers-Briggs test. I did it. Yeah. Every time I do it, no matter my age, I'm always the same. <laughs> so I did it. And then I got the other staff to do it, the leadership team to do it. It was really fascinating um, to see how we all work together in our strengths and weaknesses and how we complement and mitigate for one another. Anyway, for me, um, I'm an INFJA. Always, no matter what. No matter even if I try and game, game it, it still comes out the same. <laughs> And, and that I that I bit just means I need to um, be on my own to uh, to just regroup really and um, f- to find the energy that I need because you know I'm an energetic person I'm, I'm always doing things I'm very busy and I love that about my life and about myself but if I didn't take time out to just be on my own. Um, I don't think I could manage it. And so when I'm on my own, I don't I don't meditate um, because sitting still doing nothing to me is just an enough. <laughs> it's happened to me twice in my life. And one of those times was uh, after major surgery. So the rest of the time, I kind of always feel like I need to be maximizing what I do. So the only way I can kind of write all of those expectations on myself is, is to kind of do something when I'm when I'm needing to be on my own so that's why I exercise so everyone thinks I'm crazy you know, what, what are you doing going out for a run what are you doing getting up early and I think what I would say is it, it stops me being by exercising and particularly exercise that involves rhythmic or methodical breathing rowing swimming running um Anything that involves, you know, a kind of body movement, you know, contrasted with with, with a breathing exercise, I feel is almost like active meditation. Mm. Um, And it really helps to not just um, get that physical response to exercise that obviously we all get, but also to just regulate my breathing, regulate my heart rate, regulate my thinking. And then often while I'm exercising, you know, any kind of issues that I've been anxious about, obsessing over, you know, overthinking over. Um, will kind of resolve themselves in my head. So to answer to your question, it, you know, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I don't get grumpy. Um, I suspect that's because I do exercise and um, and I know myself really well and yeah. I know when I take some time to just be quiet on my own. Um, at, my house is really quiet. Um, I love music, but I, you know, there are times when I just sit with the birds, like now sitting with birds in the background. Just finished a long day on my computer. Um, focused on a document for school and um, you know just with the door open listening to birdsong and having the dog at my feet is just really beneficial to be honest with you. I I think you've hit on something really important there and and I think it's an element of self-awareness that is often 
not really looked at and it's that it's understanding what you need to give yourself those moments of to to sort of self-soothe yourself and to allow yourself to remain on an even keel and it's really interesting that you said that that you know that you need that time and that space on your own and that doing exercise is what gives you the I suppose it's like the endorphins isn't it and it keeps you it keeps you positive and it keeps you upbeat but being able to understand what you need to do to look after yourself is really important and I think a lot of us don't understand that or we ignore it I think as senior leaders sometimes we sort of keep pushing through and don't do those things that we know Andy Buck when I interviewed him referred to it as nourishing and I think it's a really nice way of describing it it's how you get your nourishment it's how you keep you it's how you keep your cup topped up isn't it another one like Dan Edwards did a podcast about a full or empty cup and it's about knowing what you need to do to get yourself back on track and to just keep yourself being able to to go on and I think probably I didn't understand that enough about myself when I sort of reached a point of burnout I wasn't giving myself I didn't understand myself well enough to understand what it was that was pushing me from pressure to stress and what I needed to do to sort of keep myself back from like for you know just dropping over into sometimes I think of it as being like on the edge of a cliff I sort of I was existing on the edge on the the precipice of a cliff and then something bit of you know bit of extra wind came along and I just got pushed off and I was down the bottom of the ravine but I'm really interested in that that the way that you look after yourself how do you encourage your staff to do that I'm interested in the Myers-Briggs personality test because I think I I'm the same I always come out as a campaigner ENFP (laughs) and I've done the test and I, I, I repeatedly and it comes out the same every time so how have you used that with your staff and how do you encourage them to understand themselves better well I'm an advocate of um, being self-aware really and, and self-reflective I mean that's not navel gazing or kind of being self-obsessed no no, no. Yeah. Like, like I started off just then by saying because I know myself really well and know what I need I can be all things to all people just not all the time yeah um, you know in order to do that I do have to just take take withdraw or almost and I know it can be strange for people to, to see that to start off with because I'm quite gregarious quite chatty and then they wonder why I'm not out socializing or partying or you know you, and, and they will actively say things to me like you know what you mean you're not out in town on, on a Friday night I'm like all oh, my life no I'm in my pajamas nine o'clock you know <laughs> the end quietly on my own in my house and um, and it must come as a surprise but I, so I think modeling that it's okay to do those things and that um you know you walk your own path don't you I don't compare myself to anyone else I don't expect anyone else to be up at five doing a workout or going for a run at 10 at night that's not my expectation my expectation is that people find something some joy in their lives that they do um, in order to offset some of the anxieties and pressures that we all feel in our field. And I think there are lots of different fields where there are pressures existing in, in the workplace and, and they are unavoidable because we work with people and people are influenced by lots of different pressures themselves. So education, um, you know, the police force, fire service, NHS, any kind of public sector work involves service, involves giving of yourself and you know we're not here for the money there's no doubt about it no (laughs) here because we're called to serve in whatever way and I think that involves working with people and people's lives are complex and and that can be enacted 
in your workplace you know just before you started the recording I listed for you about 10 things that happened in one day on Monday mm. and the range there and the diversity and the pull on your time and your resources is just immense you can't predict it you drive to school you have no idea what's going to happen it happens and, and then you must find ways to deal with that so I think modeling that to the staff um are, are giving them permission to and and uh, agency to be able to sort of explain and verbalize when they feel anxious I do it so we sat on Monday and, and I talked about how I felt my, my initial response, um the physical impact that I had on my I talked about you know feelings of um, nausea and my heart racing and feeling anxious um and, and feeling sadness and shock and then saying, okay, and talking people through, okay, so how do we manage this for ourselves? How can we support others to manage it? What strategies do we need to put in place? What help do we need to call on in order to be able to do all of these things? And, and so on and so forth. And, and I think it's just verbalizing and talking and, and coaching, always through a coaching model for me, I think, just coaching people through, this is how I respond. It's not necessarily how you ought to respond, but if you're struggling for a way to do it, you could crack on and give my way a try and, and see if it benefits you so how I encourage my staff to do it is by giving them license by doing it myself by showing that I'm affected and, and how I manage it um and then you know asking them on an individual basis if they need something more do you need time if, if you want some support if you want a conversation if, if you you know all those sorts of things so actively saying to them what is it you need as well as modeling I think it's really interesting because I, when I was thinking about this whole area of, you know, setting the weather and being positive, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things around now about toxic positivity and that, you know, trying to be, if you're trying to be happy and positive all the time, it, it can sometimes be damaging. So it's reassuring to me to hear that you have created an environment in which people feel that they can be open and that you can talk about times when maybe you're not at your best and you're feeling anxiety and and those things because I'm quite I'm quite a fan of Brené Brown and she writes and talks about vulnerability and how we show vulnerability as as leaders um and she talks about that being that emotional exposure and that sounds like what you just described sounds like a good example of of what she's talking about there you sort of sharing your own emotional experiences with other people um what do you think about that, that sort of that idea of leaders being vulnerable? Uh, I guess it involves being honest, really. I'm always conscious that people can look at, can look up to or look at you as a role model if you're in a position of leadership in any capacity. Um, as a teenager, I was in the air cadets uh, and I rose through the ranks and um, people, you know, young people looked up to me then, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've been in positions where people have looked up to me or I've, I've coached others, whether that's through coaching rugby or uh, netball or anything. So I think if anybody is in a position of responsibility for others or in a leadership position, they've got a responsibility to be honest because people are looking to you because if they can see it, they can believe themselves possible of, of doing and being it themselves. So if young teachers are looking at me and I'm going around with this facade of being perfect, perfectly turned out all the time, perfectly well rested, perfect in my job, 
never making mistakes, um, you know, running a house, being a mom, doing additional study, being in the army reserves. I, I, how does how does this person do all this all the time at such a high level and never drop the ball? I think there's a danger there of giving people a false <laughs> a false understanding of of how I would live my life. So for me, it's about being honest. It's about saying I can do all of those things, but things in my life have to be compromised. So I very rarely watch TV, or I very rarely go to the pub, or I don't have. What, what would traditionally be called a social life, you know, going out, partying and so on. I just don't do those things. So therefore, if that's what you want to do, then following me is not going to work. You're not going to be able to think and do those things. Or, it, you know, in, in order to do, in order to be a good head teacher, I need a good team because I'm not perfect. And I talk all the time about teamwork and about people helping me out with, with my areas of weakness. I, because I know them, because I'm honest enough to say I've looked at myself and I, and I know I'm not a detailed person. So I have a detailed person on my team. I don't actively go out looking for, for people who are good at details. It just happens that people show themselves to be good at the areas I'm weak in. Um, I'm really good at ideas and, and blue sky thinking and making things happen. And, and the energy that I bring to things can make things happen. But then I have to withdraw and go and be on my own. And that can be disconcerting for people because their first response is usually, oh, God, have I done something wrong? It's nothing to do with the other person. And it's always to do with me and what I need in order to get up the next day and be full of beans for everyone. So I think if you're not honest, then people will get the wrong impression. And that is the toxic element, I think, where, where everyone thinks they've got to be perfect all the time and everything's achievable all the time without fail, 100%. And no one's like that. Nothing is like that. It just isn't. So I don't want to perpetuate some kind of false narrative that everything's perfect and that you can be perfect at everything. You can't be, I'm not. So if that means being vulnerable because you're demonstrating that you're not perfect, and you're showing that there are areas of you that are great and areas of you that you don't particularly like about yourself or you're not, you know, aren't particularly brilliant, then I guess I, I'm a big subscriber to that. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. This is it perfectly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was, <laughs> I do a lot of coaching. I do a lot of group coaching and I do a lot of one-to-one -one coaching with women leaders. And one of the common themes is a lack of confidence with women leaders and you strike me as a very confident person so can you give maybe some of the people I coach or some of our listeners who don't feel confident an insight into what makes you so confident or how you come across as so confident I can I mean I think I am now confident but I'm a woman in my mid to late 40s and, and it didn't come easily to me I think age has helped me enormously um, to gain confidence in many ways. And that's not to do with age per se, but to do with the experience that comes with age. So when I was a child, I was virtually mute. Um, I had a not great <laughs> uh, start and a not great teenage uh, time you know, in, in my early years. So let's say I spent all of my 20s actively working on myself. I was really lucky, came across a lot of influential people who um, guided me, who gave me things to read, who saw in me that there was potential, but saw also that I was a little bit broken. And over time, I came to understand, because I was a prolific reader, 
and that's how I learn that um, there are ways that you can work on yourself to make yourself um, fix those areas that aren't, aren't right. And I, I wanted to be better. I wanted to be, I wanted to feel whole and feel um, happy about myself in my own skin. And 90% and of the time I am, there is that 10% that people laugh about because again, not right now, obviously, but um, I can turn out okay. You know, if I put the effort in and, and do my hair and put some makeup on, I work out a lot for mental health. So for women my age, have I got an okay physique? Yes, I have. You know, it, does my face look like I've been bashed in the face? No, it doesn't. So I probably scrub up okay. And I think there's a danger there for people to think that that is what gives you confidence, that when you go out, you obviously look okay, so you must be confident. And that is so not true. Because for me to get myself out of the door to any social function is a massive battle. I've got a daughter. What's helped me to try and get over that myself is her. I'm conscious that I do not want my daughter to pick up any of the hang-ups I've got. She'll pick her own up for, for whatever reason. We I don't know. <laughs> Ah, I don't want my daughter to, to think, um, you know, to be embarrassed or ashamed of herself or anxious about going out. So I try never to let my anxieties encroach onto her. And that has helped me because in telling yourself, you know, three things, what's the worst thing that can happen if I go out? What's the worst thing? Nothing. Let's work back from that then. You know, okay, you don't wear makeup much. What's the worst thing that can happen? You don't put your eyeliner on properly or you look a bit daft because you, you, you know, you're not wearing lippy or whatever, you know, and it's all those stupid things that make me anxious. I've got wardrobes full of clothes that I don't wear because I feel physically self-conscious and people literally wet themselves laughing because they think it's ridiculous. Uh, and I try and underdress sometimes because I don't want people to look at me. I, I'm tall. So obviously straight away, I've got a striking presence just from being tall um so it's it's a complex marriage really between feeling confident in my workplace because I'm happy and satisfied that I know what I'm doing and feeling lack of confidence on a personal level because you know of hang-ups that I carry through my life with me so I'm more confident when it comes to work and professional stuff than I am when it, when it comes to personal stuff, 100%. There's no doubt about it. And when I did my TED Talk, um, the anxiety I felt around sharing that story about myself was just incredible. And no one could believe it. None of my colleagues, they were, they were just speechless at how anxious I was. I was shaking, sweating, panicking, couldn't get my words out, had to rehearse couple of times standing up and talking about that and getting the words out of my mouth and what I would say is if you lack confidence do a lot of self-talk I do a lot of self-talk talk myself through it prepare in advance if I'm going out a week on Saturday which I am um, with a pal that I've not seen for over a year I'll start getting the, the outfit idea in my head that I'm going to wear this so that I can get my head around the fact I'm not going to be anxious about it and the timings I'm already planning when I'm coming home before I go somewhere because that whole thing makes me anxious so it's just um preparation and planning and talking yourself through everything a lot of self-talk but then knowing that in time there'll be things that you're more confident about and perhaps things that you're less confident about because life's about balance isn't it so as I've gotten older I'm more confident about what I like and what I don't like about not trying to push myself into areas that I'm not comfortable with 
because I just choose not to. Um, and I'm happy with my life. It doesn't make me sad that I don't do some of those things. I'm quite happy that I just live the life I want to live. I'm, I'm really grateful to you for sharing, your, well, for being so vulnerable with us, because I think it's interesting. I always think when you look on, we've got a tendency to look on Twitter, to look on Facebook, and what we see is, you know, confident women who were then, you know, compared to ourselves. And I think the saying goes that we're comparing our insides with their outsides. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice of you to share that. I think people really appreciate that, you know, you, you are very confident, you come across as very confident, but it's reassuring to know that you still have aspects of yourself that create that anxiety within mm -hmm. you. What do you want to do about that? Are you happy to accept that that's just the way you are or do you do you actively do things to help you I know one of the things you said was planning and that's that I think that's really good advice for people who want to be more confident you know make sure you've you've planned for everything but is there anything I think, else um, I think you know what's what's funny is that often this other people will often help you and um, I think you're right I think there is a tendency younger old people now look at social media and compare themselves uh, usually in a negative way so I, I don't do that interestingly I'm not because I, I don't because I'm not competing with anyone else I don't look at people on the internet and think oh you know I'm not as rich or beautiful or you know whatever I just don't do that what I think about is everyone will age and everyone's body will degrade so that being said we only have really responsibility to ourselves to keep ourselves as fit and healthy and strong as we can so I ask myself, am I doing that? And the answer is yes. And then I think uh, in terms of parenting, which is a big area for me, um, am I doing all I can to be a good parent? And if I'm not, wh which areas do I think I'm not, not doing so well at? And then I will seek the advice of others. So for example, my children are, are towards the end of their teenage years now. And um, there are times when teenagers don't want to listen to their parents, even if what their parents are saying is true and right and correct, because it's the parents. So then you, I think, OK, well, what can I do to try and guide my children sensibly through this as a single parent? So I've employed the help of coaches and um, psychotherapists, to, not because my children need therapy, but because those people I have great trust in and, and I think are valuable people to advise my children so they have done and the, the kids have spoken to them and said you know it's a really interesting chat I'm, I'm thinking it's clear on this I know what I'm going to do with my career I know where I'm going to go with this and, and I don't see that there's any shame or stigma in seeking help from others for myself or my closest uh, those closest to me um, and in other ways I think other people can validate certain aspects of you um, so what happened to me a couple of years ago, I had to have a double mastectomy, which I had, and I was off work for a bit, never been off work in my life, not even when I had my kids, but so I was off work for a bit and I struggled a lot, a massive lot, because it was January, it was miserable weather, I don't watch telly, there's naff all on, it was daytime TV, which is just awful, and uh, a lot of people came out of, you know, what you might call the woodwork, and they sort of said things like, you know, 20 years ago, you said this to me, and this is what I've done with my life, and I thought, wow, wow okay, blimey, uh, and um, it didn't just happen once, it happened a lot, and then I did the TED Talk, and more people came forward and said, well, we didn't realise that had happened to you, because you've always been this wonderful person, invested in others, positive, so over time, incrementally, what I've learned is that um, no matter how you look, or, you know, what physical state you're in, 
your impact on other people is what matters most because that's your legacy it's what you're going to leave behind you because we're all going to die one day and I, I would like to have left behind some positivity and have touched lives in a positive way I call it butterfly kisses on people's souls but um that's probably a little bit poetic for, for a Wednesday afternoon <laughs> oh I love that I love um, that I it's, would a bit, really it's a like bit that. like sort of witchy woo-woo some people would yeah, say <laughs> hippie-ish. I've been a, yeah, being a hippie before now which I'm all right with I'm cool with that but um yeah I just think we all die and um what I'd like to leave behind is definitely I'd like to touch people's lives and what I've learned in the last few years uh, is that is that I have already and, and I won't stop and where you can give you should give and so that's what I judge myself on and that those are things that help me to be more confident because I think as I'm aging I'm actually in a better position to do those things for others so while some people are looking at social media thinking I'm not a skinny or pretty or whatever I'm sat here with no boobs thinking no matter because I'm actually able to invest in others and give to others and a long time from now when I'm an old lady be able to look back and think I've done that all my life and, and that's what that's what kind of is my goal my goal isn't to be a CEO or a you know a great academic in charge of a university or mega rich or you know beautiful until the day I croak it's to kind of know that on that day when I'm you know croaking that I look back and I think I've done all I can do Vic you are an absolute inspiration I think to come through adversity like you have and and be so just positive and it's so clear you just engage so enthusiastically and fully with with your work and with your life I think people are going to be totally inspired by you so thanks so much for joining us on the podcast it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you you've you've actually made me think right I'm going to actually get out now and do because I've seen something about um, the perimenopause and menopause which I'm particularly interested in and I'm really interested in you know getting it out there and talking about it and um, I've been I've followed someone on Instagram she talks about lifting weights and how that really helps with I think potentially I might have low estrogen levels at the minute Um, so when I when I saw you I just so the just so the listeners can picture it you're wearing sort of a workout outfit aren't you and I, I looked enviously I mean yeah I mean I do we we, we share it with we've uh, like comparing guns now. <laughs> um, I mean I'm naturally quite muscular anyway so it's not really working out that's done that to be honest but you've given me some inspiration to think right I need to go and do that I was in a car accident last week actually and my back has been yeah so running it was just I got around the corner and thought oh my goodness I can't do this I'm supposed to be doing the Manchester Marathon in October and I think I think it's been knocked on the head so I've got to do something else to keep myself fit Mm -hmm. and well and walking is obviously something that I do because I've got the dog but the weights you've inspired me to go right okay I'm going to go and I'm going to yeah, go and do that weights, now. Um, people laugh. I've got a big, I've got, well, not big one. I've got a 10K weight under my desk at school, um, right by the dog's bed, actually. And um, what I will make myself do every hour or so, and this is how you can build it into your day, by the way. Exercise snacking. Uh, yeah. So, so basically, if I, if I, my watch tells me I haven't stood up, so I get off the computer, stand up every hour. You can do 20 tricep dips or 20, you know, 
um, squats or 20 press-ups. You can do it where you make a brew. People have walked into the staff room and <laughs> office staff and do 20 press-ups. <laughs> I was going to say squat the squats. They found you squatting in the... <laughs> um yeah the squats happen in the office nobody needs to see my behind <laughs> yeah the press-ups can be done in the uh in the, in the staff room and uh, yeah it's easy to kind of build that into your day then it doesn't see, feel so insurmountable um when you've done it through the day and you can do that if you're on the yard with the kids you know you're on yard duty or uh yeah just do it various times during the day so that that's my little my little go-to tip for you all there today well it's a great tip and there have been so many other things to take from from what we've talked about today so thank you so much um if people want to find out more about you or you know have a look at you know what you're doing where where can they find you i'm on twitter at happyhead74 i am on linkedin dr victoria car um Obviously, there's my school website. In fact, the school staff keep a running log of the podcasts and stuff and the blogs that I do on that website. So if you're interested in any other podcasts or this one, then uh, definitely on the website. Well, I did mention I'd heard you. I came to know of you from Steve Waters. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. It's Radio... Teach Well Alliance. Radio Hub. Teacher Radio Hub. Yes, so yeah. th- there's. You sent me some flowers yesterday to school. The most gorgeous flowers. Look, you probably see them. Oh, how nice! Yeah, he's nice. lovely. I did my first podcast with Steve Waters. Ah, oh, so, yeah. So. I, did, I did one with him in which I cried. <laughs> 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 Who knows why? It was one of those days. He caught me off guard. People ask me different questions every time I do these podcasts, and. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting your response, and sometimes your responses are visceral. And he asked me about um, divorce. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought about it for a few years, and yeah, and I cried. So he had to cut the podcast in two. So you cut yours in two. <laughs> he cut his in two because I was a sniveling wreck. Right? Um, well, I've been crying today because um, I'm putting together. I'm doing um, an accreditation as a resilient leaders elements consultant, um, and we have to. We're coming to the end of it, and we've got to deliver a half an hour showcase. Um, and I was looking at some in it. I've put some pictures of myself as a as a very young, well, a, a four year old. Um, and one of the one of the bits of my presentation is about how where I am now. I've been able to I've been able to go back and reassure that little girl that um, you know things weren't as she thought they were. And as I was doing it, I was just in floods of <laughs> just sitting here in front of my computer in floods of tears. So it's funny, isn't it? How some things quite visceral they just have that effect on us. I think particularly when you're perimenopausal. Yes, probably that doesn't help. Or maybe it does help to release to release the pent yeah. emotions. Yeah. Right. I, I could talk to you all day. I'm the same in every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I aim for the podcast being about 40 minutes long and it always ends up being over an hour. But I'm sure people are gonna be I'm sure people are gonna be really fascinated by what you've got to say. So take care, Vic. I am aware that that was quite a long interview due to the fact we had to do it over two sittings. So I'm going to keep this brief. But what I think is really important to take from this interview is that idea of awareness and how Vic is aware of herself and others and her environment. And she understands how these things come together so that she's able to be as flexible as she can in how she supports her staff. She trusts them to get what they need to get done done when they can and she also talks about the team and how the team effort is so important everyone in her school community supports each other 
if there's an opportunity to work from home, Vic and the other members of the school community support that. And I think the, the other thing that I want to bring out of this is that the pandemic has forced us to be flexible. And I think it's really important that we don't lose that as we come out of the pandemic and things start to return to something a little bit more like normal. And as you've heard in this interview, Ruby has been barking a little bit. Um, so the school dog, I'm so in favour of that. I think it's really important. Anyway, I am starting the next cohort of my Women Lead Well group coaching programme in September and I've had lots of interest in it and people are signing up. So if it's something that you are interested in, don't hesitate, get in touch with me. You can get in touch with me via the We Lead Well Twitter account or you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn or you can join our Facebook group, the We Lead Well Facebook group. So just find us there and join, become a member. It's a great community to be part of. Thank you so much for listening today. That really is all I've got time to squeeze in. Uh, if you want to find out more about me, you can visit my website at www.transformeducationcoach.com and I will see you next time. Take care of yourself take care of your staff and lead well. This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.